Podcasting from Astrolab Studios, this is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast where we revisit sci-fi, fantasy, and just plain weird shows that have faded from the collective consciousness and didn't quite make the impact that they intended. This week, Frank Herbert's Dune, Part 2. History will say that the Fremen were about to find their messiah. That Paul Atreides would find his revenge. And the world as we knew it would change forever. The saga of Dune is far from over. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that wants to hear all about the water on from your homeland. Huh. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Uh, I Just before uh, we started recording, I was like, oh, right, I have to, to think of what's real. But I do have something that I think is real, and it's a little tip for people listening. And it's, if you're planning on watching this series, Luke, I mentioned to this, this to you a couple days ago when we were talking, I found the perfect way to watch this which is in 10 minute increments now it could be 10 minutes on one day and then 10 minutes on another day and then 10 minutes later in the day but you don't really want to watch more than 10 minutes or there's a danger you may fall asleep and or die but if you're like making a cup of tea put on dune for a couple minutes and you have to put a load of laundry in put on dune for a couple minutes and and it's perfect and it's really palatable any longer than that though I wouldn't recommend. So you think it does work as a miniseries, but just a much longer miniseries? Yeah, you could you could watch it forever. It could go on episode after episode. It just you can only take it in a couple minutes. Yeah, you want time. like fifty five individual episodes at five, ten minutes at a time. In a way, this feels like it's fifty five episodes, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm powering through them. Are you? Did you watch them all? Uh, I watched one I watched them in two chunks of forty five minutes. Mm, yeah, you should try the ten minute. It's a new thing I'm uh, I'm going to be advertising. Your new, your new way of, it's like, you do anything, but only 10 minutes at a time. That's it. You're going to lose weight that way? You're going to, I I don't know, find the love of your life? 10 minutes. Watch 10 minutes of Dune. Start cooking for 10 minutes. Yeah. Bathe, but only for 10 minutes. Life, 10 minutes at a time. We could we could sell that book. <laughs> sure. Why not? So, part two. And I, I, here's, I have a, I titled a title for uh, part two. Oh, I forgot two. you were doing this. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the first one was, I don't remember what I had the first episode. It was like Spice Time or something like that. But this part two is called The Balance of Power, and then in brackets, must be contained. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. That is thanks. a great title for this part, actually. So that that's part two, and I'll have to come up with a part three. But I only have to... It's I'll come up within one of those 10 minutes. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, either during one of the 10 minutes or during one of the breaks. So uh, as we're going into this, I kind of decided I probably should do a little history lesson for myself on how this pilot or the pilot this miniseries came together because you know obviously last episode i was confused and uh, bewildered by the uh, by the whole thing i don't think you were bewildered you were more despondent uh sad unhappy angry i think there was a lot of anger mostly directed at all me. right captain thesaurus don't make me get angry again <laughs> um but uh i was kind of looking at it and you know what the history of it is 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 kind of interesting actually it kind of spawned uh sort of out of the idea of a producer named richard rubenstein mm-hmm. he uh he was george romero's producer you know uh from right. uh, dawn of the dead and and martin and all the, yeah, the, yeah. those type uh, george romero movies you just can say the the Dawn of the Dead movies, the whole series. That's all he really did. He did like eighty five of those. He did lots of great stuff. Did he? he oh, hold on, 
He did lots of great stuff. I think we're going to disagree. Did he do anything? Uh, I, I like Martin. Martin's pretty good. I never saw Martin. Um, I'm sure there's some others. I think I've seen a few of his movies. I don't think he's a bad filmmaker. All right. Well, he's dead anyway. <laughs> Rest in peace. Buried right here in Toronto. Is that right? Yeah, I went to his grave. Oh, weird. Please say it has a hand coming out, like a sculpture of a hand. Oh, like. Well, that's the thing. I was I just happened to be doing a walk through the cemetery just for funsies, um, and it was relatively recent to his funeral. So I, I did come across it, but it didn't have a headstone yet. So it's possible that hand may still come. Well, I think we have to do a, uh, a date, you and I. We'll go out to check out his grave and see if there's a hand there. <laughs> the, that's not a bad idea. That's actually like a big ha- hand st- headstone with a giant hand like reaching into the ground. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah, especially for him, seeing as that's only, the only movies, the only he, ever movies he ever made. Um, getting back to his producer, though, around this time, he had kind of come up with this concept where he, he was buying up uh, like book franchises. Like, he had just produced uh, the Stephen King's The Stand and Stephen King's Langoliers miniseries. Mm-hmm. And in doing this, he picked up all six of the Dune books. And he kind of had this idea that, like, you could do these books as, like, blockbuster miniseries. Sort of, like, right. expansive retellings that get into more of the detail that, that a movie couldn't. And around this time, uh, the Sci-Fi Channel was also kind of, like exploring this thing so the two of that like the two of them kind of hit it off there's some synergy in the kind of the ways they wanted to go with the network and like do these do these blockbuster miniseries in fact this dune miniseries we actually owe it something what is that this sort of idea of doing a bunch of miniseries in the next kind of two or three years after dune spawned the miniseries for the battlestar galactica remake oh really yeah, it's it's directly related to the lineage of this first Dune miniseries because it was such a success. Yeah, they I think they had success with this first one. They uh, they did one with Stephen King called Taken, and then they they tried a few of these miniseries. And Battlestar Galacta happened to be done in two thousand three, like three years afterward. Interesting. And you know, spawned one of the great science fiction uh, television shows. There's parts of it are great. The the latter seasons, I think there is some hit and misses there. But anyway. That, that that's that's not really save important. that save that for a different day yeah exactly you didn't like that they were angels Ugh. that honestly the first season of that show was so great and then each season there it would just like what if we just do something <laughs> annoying anyway oh well i mean i'm more forgiving of it but remember though when they remember they gave uh adama that fat suit young adama i don't <laughs> there was no reason they just gave him a plot line like like what if you gain a lot of weight and so for like three episodes you had a fat suit on <laughs> it was pretty great <laughs> there was a young adama yeah, what's his name? Uh, the the there was a Dama, the admiral. And then what was the young guy? His oh, son. Oh, the son. I thought you meant there was like a series of flashbacks where we got to see young Adama. Oh no, no. But it was still no, the same the actor. Guy. But he was now in a fat suit and playing a younger version of himself. No, that that would be something. That's something to wrap your so, mind around. So the guy who wrote and directed this, he you know he's kind of the creative force behind it. His name was John Harrison, and I think he kind of ended up on this because. He knew Rubenstein and actually Romero as well. They they worked together. He was like Romero's first AD for a while. And they sort of acted as mentors for him because he came out of the music scene and kind of got into filmmaking later on. In fact, like he, he had been directing like the uh, Tales from the Dark Side TV show. And then he eventually did the feature film for Romero and Rubenstein. But basically, he, he got the opportunity to do this. He wrote the script himself. And then he kind of went out and he was actually able to attract some pretty amazing talent behind the scenes to this project. Obviously, it probably had something to do with the book. He he says in some interviews, he says that they also quite like the script. 
But um, I, do you, you want to hear who some of the behind-the-scenes talent was? Yeah, I do. The person doing the visual effects on it had done the visual effects on Terminator, The Thing, and The Abyss before this. All, all blockbusters. The costume designer had done Amadeus. Oh, yeah, I remember we were talking about the costume designer. I still think it's my favorite thing of this uh, of this series is, is how out there the costume Well, I think is. that's because it's great, great behind-the-scenes creatives on this. The director of photography is a three-time Oscar winner. Really? He got Oscars for Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor, and Reds. I'm guessing you've never seen Reds, right? I have not. I have not. I mean, I think the one that I was most excited for is he was also, he was nominated for an Oscar for Dick Tracy. Oh, so he's Warren Beatty's guy, too. He actually came on board because at a point early in his career, he was nearly the director of photography on Jardowski's Dune. Weird. So when the opportunity came back around to finally make Dune, he he was very excited, apparently. He found out about it, I think, through the guy who ended up ADing it and, like, insisted on a meeting because he really wanted to. Apparently, he had had all these ideas for shooting it, you know, in the 70s, and he just really wanted to, like, try to get on to Dune. So he, he was very gung-ho to join this movie. I don't know if the 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 look of this, the what the the DOP would have shaped, I don't know if there's anything particularly evocative about where this looks this looks like a tv movie you'd see on sci-fi do you know what i mean like we talked about the costumes but like did you think this looks this looks great this looks like like a three-time oscar winner shot i think it looks exactly like apocalypse now uh no i don't think it looks like apocalypse now no <laughs> i mean there are obviously some limitations like i think the uh, price tag i read was 20 million dollars to make the movie the like the three parts right. i guess the three movies of the miniseries so i think you know it was, it was, it was, the money was stretched. And, you know, to be fair, I think they stretched it as well as they could. It does look pretty good considering it's a TV movie with, uh, it's on a pretty epic scale. Sort of shooting on right. a, you know, $20 million is a budget for four and a half hours of television. Right. And I will say, to its credit, the one thing I think it does maybe the best as far as like Dune goes is those blue eyes the Fremens have. Yeah. You like that? Well, did you did you read about how they made those? A few weeks ago, I did, and then I but I don't remember. I know there was some sort of special technique they did, but it's not just contacts. Well, right? it is contact lenses, but they're uh, special UV contacts, so they were able to like blast them with UV light and use a special camera that can then pick up that wavelength. Right. And I I will say it's the one thing whenever I watch it, the eyes glowing blue, they they just look good. They're not like drawn in later. They're not kind of CG'd in. They look practical and they look really good. Well, I, I'm I'm not going to disagree with you on that. I I still just really rob rob for the costume. Well, that's good. Some someone's out there cheering for this costume designer. Yeah, because even in this one, we're talking about there was some more crazy hats. I was like, man, I thought I'd seen all the crazy hats I could see, but nope, there's more. Well, you, let's get into the episode then. All right, here's the IMDb summary for Frank Herbert's Dune Part Two. The lady Jessica and her son Paul Atreides managed to contact the native Dune population known as Fremen. It could it could also be the plot is. They walk around a lot, talking about sand and water. They absolutely just do this in this episode. I mean, here's the thing. Before we get into it, Luke, the first, I kind of assumed the first episode of this would be a, a real setup. And it was. There was a lot of, here's all the players. Here's why it's important. Here's why people don't get along. Here's what they're fighting about, blah, blah, blah. I thought the second one would really elevate the action and sort of create a lot of problems for paul and you know your sort of normal three-act structure it's not really though it it feels real stalling didn't you think i don't know i mean i didn't think it was any more stalling than the first episode it felt to me like 
we'd gone past the first act that was the setup and now we're kind of learning what the new normal is like he's got to go he's got to meet the fremen he's got to like find his place in their society and kind of rise up their ranks and that's basically what happens yeah we get to watch a shot of like fremen marionettes that was important to get in it there. was uh that was very scary those uh, fremen puppets freaked me out <laughs> yeah i'll have to i'll have to grab that and put it on instagram at some point but essentially the the episode starts off exactly where the last week's ended with uh, Paul and Lady Jessica kind of recovering from a crash after they flew into that big sandstorm trying to escape the Harkonnen forces. Yeah, and they get to, they they walk away from the crash for about 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, they kind of decide they have to go find some Fremen and they, they just start walking and there's a lot of, there's a lot of desert walking going on. We kind of uh, come to learn that uh, Lady Jessica is uh, pregnant. We, we see in a, in a premonition that Paul has a floating fetus. I kept writing his waking nightmares. Well, it's true. That also is kind of something that involves in this episode is now he doesn't have to be asleep for premonitions. Like, he can have them while he's awake. And yeah, and other people notice it too. I think there's at least two instances. I don't know the guy's name. The guy who's essentially the leader of the Fre- Freeman, Fremen, whatever Still the name are. Yeah, so the guy who's kind of balding. He, uh, he's like, do you have another dream? And then later on, he's with old uh, Susie the lady he's peeping on and she's like do you have a dream and he's like yeah he just keeps having dreams all the time he's full of premonitions he's the spice is really affecting him and his benny jesuit uh dna mm-hmm. his benny jesuit yeah <laughs> well they're wandering though there's there's a kind of actually very cute cgi mouse that pops up and comes to visit the visit him for a second i loved it i thought it looked great it is one of the greatest effects of the series is this little tiny mouse climbs up this rock and looks at it and it is like it is like ratatouille adorable yeah it was so, in a lot of ways, just out of character for this show. The show that is quite, not self-serious, but I, there's been no weird, like, CGI characters that could possibly be made into, like, plush creature that you could sell for the show. And that's that's what that felt like. I was really hoping it was going to take a Ratatouille turn and, like, the mouse would talk and live under his hat and tell him what to do. Right. Is that what they did in that movie? Yeah, yeah that's what Ratatouille's all about. A little, a little mouse who makes food. Yeah, I, I was too busy, busy watching Reds. He might be a rat, actually. <laughs> Yeah, either. Don't worry, that that mouse thing is important for later on. Well, that's why I bring it up. It's coming back a little later. Yeah, what a tease. (laughs) But essentially, like, they wander the desert for a while. They get chased by one of these sandworms, which, like, chases them into a cave and roars at them. And they're like, isn't it weird that this worm smells like cinnamon, which also apparently spice smells like cinnamon? Yeah, was that? Because I thought at one point, I was like, what, is, is spice just cinnamon? Is this a cinnamon society? But no, it just... It just smells like cinnamon. Hey, I'm not ruling it out. I think this whole thing might be about cinnamon. Yeah, that's a better title for this whole series, Cinnamon. <laughs> Sounds like a Jennifer Garner action movie. Yeah, I, I watched that movie, Peppermint. <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> Poor Jennifer Garner. Yeah, well, whatever, she tried. Essentially, though, in this cave, what they do is they, they kind of find this Fremen garden where they bump into a, a Fremen army. This this guy, Stilgar, sort of runs this clan of Fremen. And we met him earlier. He was... Um, the guy who came to visit his dad with uh, his dad's old right-hand man, Duncan Idaho. Hold on. What's Duncan's last name? Idaho. Is it really? Yeah. I realize we never got into that last episode, but the, the character's name, because they said it a few times, was Duncan Idaho. And I'm like, what a name. <laughs> I never heard that once. I heard them say Duncan, but never Idaho. <laughs> the Fremen aren't really happy to see Paul and uh, Lady Jessica. They, they really want their flesh water. They're kind of like hankering for them to die so they can get that water out of their sweet bodies is this the part luke and this is a question for you does jessica have some sort of transporting power no this is what because later on this is when they they first meet them 
and everyone has like the guns on them. Yeah. To help Paul escape, because Paul sort of escapes. Does she like transport on the other side of a guy? Oh, I I don't. I thought she just grabbed a guy and held him, but maybe I missed something. I thought she transported because later on Paul has that ability. Oh, well, that might explain because yeah, later on we do see something similar to that. So maybe that was here. I just yeah. I, so I thought I thought what it was was she sort of appeared out of nowhere, like just behind the guy, and then he was to get him get. But it happened so fast, and honestly, I was watching this in ten minute increments, so I was not going to rewind it. <laughs> um. Yeah, maybe she did transport herself because uh, later they'll talk about the magic powers that the Benny Jesuits have. So that I, I believe that might be one of them. So there you go. So, anyways, they they don't they don't escape from them. No, uh, Paul punches one in the face, and she grabs one of the guys and kind of threatens his life. And Stillgard begrudgingly grants them a pardon so that the other Fremen don't kill them for their water. And since she kind of be, they kind of join the ranks of the Fremen and uh, start a wa- start walking again through the desert off to the Fremen city of, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this, Sechtabar? Sounds right to me. So we kind of have a bit of a, a journey here. We're going to kind of see the Fremen and their, and their nomadic way of life. They seem to have rocks on Dune that uh, you shake them and they glow. That's how they make light. Is that, is that what it was? They were actual rocks? Well, didn't you see them? They had those huge like circles. Yeah, I didn't think there were rocks, though. But uh, really? What did you think they were? I don't know. I just, they were lights. I don't know. They just, because they were just in rocks all the time. I don't know. I actually thought it, it looked pretty good. The set they had of like the sort of um, semi cave, semi uh, carved into stone sort of look. I think at one point they sort of imply that there's a, even a big statue in the background, but you only see part of its feet. I thought it looked pretty good. Yeah. It, I mean, they did a good job with the sets in general. I mean, the whole thing looks good, I guess. Sorry, are you talking about the statue? Well, at one point, they, they you can see just, uh, like, in the background. You, you don't see the whole statue, but you just see it's, like, feet. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Man, I must not have been paying attention to this cave scene. I think you and I, I, we've mentioned this before, we're noticing very different things. You're noticing rock lights, and I'm noticing statue feet, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is what I what this por- portion is is they're they're kind of just showing the the nomadic way of life, and at some point while they're on this journey, they stop and they're like, "All right, everybody, strip out of your still suits so we can kind of clean them and get the water ready to go." And this is kind of where we're introduced to who is going to be Paul's romantic love interest in this in this show, uh, a woman named Cheney. What I like is when she kind of gets introduced. You see, kind of see her in the background, and they're all taking off their costumes and. She takes off her top and and so and uh, Paul's like staring at her like a, you know, like a little bit of a pervert. And uh, later on, Jessica's like, I can tell she's one from your dreams because of how you stare at her. And I was like, no, no, because she was topless. That's why I was staring at her. It was funny because, I mean, a first time we're seeing nude butts and nude breasts in a show. Yeah, that is the first time he's like staring at her. And then she clearly catches him. But he doesn't stop staring. He just continues to stare intensely. And she kind of like covers up and turns away. I'm like, Paul, some some shame, please. I think it's just cultural differences. Oh, right. He's uh, rich and entitled. I forgot. Yeah, exactly. He's a little he's a little prince. He's like, guess what? You get topless. I look at any rate, though. Uh, don't don't be afraid. Cheney definitely comes around to his charms and they and they do start a romance in this episode. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> that's all it took. You know what? I, I like when we've talked about this before, but. This they spend so much time with people walking and people talking about nothing, just stuff like back history of books that it's not important to this movie at all. Um, but then they're like, we need to develop a love interest. We're like, hey, sorry, take her top off. That's all. That's all I need for them to fall in love. I mean, they they try. She they, she also happens to like how moist his skin looks. 
that's true that's true what i like that scene though she's like look how moist your skin is and she's going on and on about how good it looks because of his the water in his planet and i was like she looks fine like her skin's just as moist as his it's not like they pick some some dry actress it is a flaw in the idea of the fremen is if they are going to be this water deprived society you're right they should have been like a lot drier looking they should have been like more cracky and like maybe the new movie will get into that but anyways, I, th- I thought her skin looked good, so she shouldn't be down on herself. I'm trying to think, too, like, back on David Lynch's movie, I don't think he... I think the people look general, genuinely, like, normal there, too. It's it's a yeah. real, like, missed opportunity. I don't think there's a lot of uh, shriveled actors that are around, you know, that, that are just available. Actors that haven't been drinking water. I, I, you know, just put some... Just draw some cracks on their face. That is true. That's what makeup's for. I feel like I've seen that before. There's got to be some Marvel movie where some guy's just like... Get shriveled? Looks like he's like real dry. Well, what's his face? Remember the bad guy at the end of Indiana Jones 3? After he doesn't drink from the right cup? Oh, and he, he gets all, he, he gets all shriveled. <laughs> he, chose, he chose poorly. See, it's doable. Anyway, while this is going on, we kind of get a quick catch up about the aftermath of the coup back at the castle. Baron Harkonnen has captured Dr. Keynes, the uh, Fremen ecologist, and as it turns out, father of Cheney, mm-hmm. who is being sentenced to death because Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen is not buying. They had nothing to do with this whole, like, helping out the uh, the House Atreides, and he sends him to death by making him go walk in the desert. Have you noticed this about Baron Harkonnen? I noticed it last episode, and I didn't comment on it, but when he's sentencing this Dr. Keynes to death here... His line at the very end of it is he, he says, be sure he recalls these flimsy denials when he's face to face with death's sweet smiles. Does he speak in sort of uh, some sort of rhyming, rhyming couplets? He definitely will end a monologue on a rhyme. That's weird. I'm going to have to look out for it now. I have a, a, a honest confession. When he starts speaking, I usually just gloss over because he doesn't have anything to say. What I did notice was, though, he uh, at one point his robe really comes uh, open a lot and he's there you see a lot of his leg a lot of thigh and he's wearing a garter and i thought that was an odd choice i mean he's got he's got that's that costume designer yeah they're earning their money on this one anyway dr Keynes gets sentenced to walk around in the desert till he dies and we do get a shot of him looking pretty dried out for a second um but his final death is i was not i did not see it coming i can't what what happened to him i can't even remember he gets out in the desert and there's a low rumbling sound, and he kind of is just like, "Oh right, and now I die a true desert person." And the desert underneath him just explodes. Yeah. So I wrote. So I did write it down. I my well, my one note was, "Wait, why did he just blow up?" But later on, they all can like feel the rever- reverberations where they are. But it was like, "Is this a tremor from the earth, or were there like explosives there?" I didn't understand. Oh well, this is explained a little later by uh, Stillgard or possibly Cheney. But the idea is that is where spice comes from. It's called a spice blow. <laughs> I did. I did. Man, I don't think I've been watching this thing at all. A spice blow. Apparently, the spice kind of capitulates under the sand. And then there was some indication it had something to do with the moisture in the air. I'm not sure exactly how it works. But essentially, when enough spice is gathered in a place, it, it blows up sort of in an explosion and lands all over. That's how the spice gets on top of the sand. Can, can I make uh, one adjustment real quick? Instead of what I had titled this, uh, the second episode, can we please just call this Spice Blow? <laughs> Part two, Spice Blow. We'll edit around that. Yeah. But yeah, they're talking about this Spice Blow and Stilgard kind of talks about how the Fremen actually collect a lot of spice too. Like they've been harvesting it. 
because they've been uh, using it to bribe the spacing guild, mm-hmm. which I guess is some sort of like commerce department of space in this in this empire. And they're bribing them to knock satellites out of the sky around Dune so that the Harkonnens really can't keep tabs on them. Hmm. I mean, it seems like the Fremens are actually fairly well organized and not quite as like backwater as we've been like led to believe. Like they're they're clearly like making deals out in international space or intergalactic space. It was something I actually had a question about because this is not uh, ruining anything. But as time goes on, they start essentially the Fremen start doing sort of guerrilla style attacks on the Harkonnens. And Paul is there and they're suddenly like treating Paul as the leader. But I don't know if his presence changed anything. Like they seemed pretty organized before he got there. And it didn't it's not like I, I guess I didn't understand why him being there suddenly gave him this prominent position. I'm like, you guys were doing fine without him. Well, let's go back and we'll go through it. But I think there is sort of an explanation for that. Oh, okay. I mean, it's hard to get into. Like, essentially, he does join the Fremen. And they're, I think they were doing it the because he witnesses them doing a few of these guerrilla attacks. I think this has been going on for a long time with the Harkonnen. They have been leading guerrilla attacks. They have been doing these things. And Stilgar can kind of see that Paul has potential and could possibly be this messiah because of his mom. Mm-hmm. And... Stilgar takes him under his wing, and there's a long montage of, like, a whole bunch of different raids and stuff. And yeah. I think just over the course of that, like, by the end of one of these raid montages, we do get this slow-motion shot of Paul, like, in a big cape, like, walking toward a guy and slitting his throat. I think the idea is just that, like, he's becoming a more competent soldier. Right. And because he is, like, charismatic and he's, like, this royalty guy, he's able to kind of talk people into things and he's just he's he's growing in esteem i think amongst the fremen right and at some point he will have like a meeting with all the leaders of the fremen and propose to them to teach them the weirding way of the Benny jesuit which is of course that weird thing where they can kind of like teleport i guess is the weirding way but and they, and they also get to use like a batman voice sometimes yeah, there's there's things they can clearly do. And I think the weird Batman voice is mind control. And we do kind of get a couple of glimpses of this, like, I'm not sure. I called it evaporation, but you're right. Maybe it's like it, it's teleportation or something. They just, I guess they can move faster than the human eye can see. Right. I think what it is, is he is growing as a soldier and people are going to respect him. And he kind of can see a way that they can build the Fremen, who's already a pretty well-organized army, into an army that could potentially stand against the emperor even i have two things to say about the guerrilla attacks one i really like the attack where uh, they just popped out of the sand i enjoyed that yeah that was a good one and the second part was the actual outfits that the harkonnens were wearing look like they were um I, I have to say the the costume designer did not nail it on this it just looked like they were samurai outfits that had just been repainted yeah, that's what, uh, they were. They were in the last episode too. They had. I like the cool samurai outfit. Did you? I didn't really like those that much. They're so they're so gaudy. It's perfect for the Harkin. Uh, I guess. I mean, it's totally impractical for the desert, but <laughs> that's true. It's very hot under those masks. When they originally caught Paul and Jessica, Paul punched one of these fremen, and they're still on. They're still in the outs with him at the beginning. And this fremen who got punched is pretty upset that he got punched by Paul. And I guess in fremen culture, you can kind of challenge someone to a duel if they've i guess insulted your honor or something so they do and he basically challenges paul to this like fight to the death paul's never taken a life before and it's going to be this big knife fight because all the fremen really use are knives even on their raids they only really ever bring knives never guns and you should mention it's an underwear fight yes they're they're all they're both 
it's not an underwear. It's more of a diaper they're wearing. <laughs> Sorry. So you're right. It's a diaper fight. They're they're nude except for like it's far too lumpy to be underwear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's it's I think it's just their normal outfit that they've just tucked all in. So that's their oh, shirt exactly. and their pants are all tucked in. This this man that Paul's going to fight, I as the fight's about to start, it he like leans into Paul and he says uh May your blade chip and shatter. And I was like, oof, that's bad sportsmanship. You're supposed to, like, wish them luck or something. No, no, it's trash talk. He's trash talking him. There's there's a bit of an extended, like, knife fight. And Paul doesn't really use his, like, he's still the superior fighter, but he doesn't really use any of his magic powers here. In fact, he doesn't even really want to kill the guy. And it kind of ends with the guy falling on his own knife. Yeah, the guy does this, like, big, he tried, for a while, like, he first he did, like, a drop kick, which kind of worked. And then he, like, jumped on him and just, like, kind of, like, ended up accidentally stabbing himself i was like well that's kind of an anticlimactic end paul took his life but it was a little more of a suicide on the other guy's part yeah it was kind of cool though is after he dies we kind of get to see um a fremen funeral did you think that was cool i i was like i don't need to see this i just this sort of stuff like i appreciate that in a book but in this movie i'm like guys just get to it i don't need to see this i don't care but this is kind of they've been teasing it the whole time and talking about like your body has water in it. How do yeah. we'll take your flesh water? And you kind of see him in this like stone sarcophagus they're putting a lid on. But around the stone sarcophagus, all this like water's bubbling out. Like somehow this thing is like sucking the water out and moving it into these troughs next to him. And then Paul's got to drink it. Yeah. Well, as the winner, Paul gets to have the first sip of the flesh water. Yeah. I again, I I appreciate this, and it's some interesting world building and stuff. But like, don't you just want it the the plot to keep going? Like, enough. Keep going. But, I mean, they've been teasing this so much. Like, they had to show us how the water comes out of the body. I suppose. I suppose. I mean, what plot? What are you racing to get to? Just something Just something happening. They're, literally, they're just walking around, just, like, talking about stuff. I'm like, just get to something. I mean, this is one of the best parts. <laughs> this was one of the best parts? Ooh. What else would you put on the list? That should that should tell you about this. This, this is one of the best parts. <laughs> how much water came out of that body? Oh, well, enough for everyone to have a drink. 33 liters. Is that what they said? Yeah. You were paying much more attention to this than I was. You're only watching in 10-minute segments. You can't even get 10 minutes of your time. I was doing laundry with it at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, this is sort of Paul now has beat a man in the Fremen community. You would think this might turn them against him, but it kind of is the thing that like invites him in. Because at this moment after the funeral, they say, now that you're going to be one of us, you have to sort of choose your Fremen name. And this is the uh, the the how the mouse comes back into it because he wants the name of the mouse and they're all very pleased with that because did you catch catch what how they described the mouse I didn't I know they were yeah. like it was like very industrious or something the mouse is quite liked amongst the people because it survives in the desert in fact it I think its fremen name means teacher of boys <laughs> okay but uh, yeah I mean a funny name but also it is what Paul's going to become when he starts teaching them the weirding way and stuff. But right. it's pronounced, uh, the name is Maudib. Maudib? Yeah. I think it's M-U-A-D apostrophe D-I-B. Right. So Maudib or something. Yeah. So Little Mouse. They're going to call him Little Mouse. He's going to call him Little Mouse. What was probably works better in the book and maybe not in um, in in a spoken word platform is, you know, it's not that there's a lot of tension about whether he's going to end up being this this mythical savior the mahadi that they're all like touting yeah. who's going to save dune but like they're constantly calling him Mahadib or talking about the mahadi like they're almost the same word i'm like i kept getting confused as to what they're referring to yeah i mean you're, you're right you actually made an interesting point there though 
there isn't really any tension that he's not going to become this messiah. Like, of course he is. They, they almost like they say it. He knows it. The people know it. It's just like it, it's it's just a foregone conclusion. So it would have been nice maybe if there was some tension, but I don't even know how you would have been able to do it. That's just what this story is. He's the chosen one. Yeah, it, it is what it is. I think I, when I read the book, I'm I, I'm sure I didn't quite pick up on Mahadib and Mahadi or whatever it is, just because like I was reading it and not like necessarily piecing it together. But once I heard it out loud, I'm like, oh right, obviously. Right. There's a pretty cool sequence here though. Where they uh, they have to they're finally going to make it to this Fremen city they've been traveling to and I don't know why they didn't this do this sooner but they they decide they can catch some uh, of the Fremen public transit <laughs> right yeah did you did you like uh, did you like their their bus to get there well wait, hold on now I remember like the the uh, I assume was some sort of train system was it a bus or am I thinking of a different thing <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking of. they go out one night the whole lot of them with a bunch of hooks. And they all catch a sandworm and ride him to the oh, city. Oh, that's what you meant. Well, that's not really a transit system. I Absolutely. Thought you meant- There's a driver who's driving. Who's He drives over. He's, he's not driving, driving the worm he's, over. He's riding it. They all climb on board. And then he like he's using two hooks and steering it like a bus. Yeah, he's he's riding it. He's not driving. It. I thought you meant because later on you you see there's that uh, like a little train that goes through the middle of the city and you see all the poor people. I thought that's what you meant. <laughs> No, no, it's this train, this train worm they all ride. Yeah, which, which again, looks pretty good. I like the uh, look of the worm. At this sort of Fremen city, like, it's kind of the first time we see maybe Fremen civilization. It's, it's like, kind of Egyptian. It's all carved into the mountain base and the stones. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a huge statue that they say is, like, a statue of the uh, Mahadi. Yeah. And uh, it, like, looks like a guy in a robe with a cow head or something. I'm assuming Paul will get a cow head later. He gets a bit of a tour from Chaney, his uh, his lady love, and they she shows him underground of this place. They've kind of been building these reservoirs of huge amounts of water. This is how they're planning to terraform the planet. Like they've been very proactive. Like they have a plan. Yeah, and and she she states that they have them all over the place. Like this is not one. There's like hundreds, if not thousands, of these sort of reservoirs. Right, and this is this is the point where she asks him to uh, tell her about the waters on your home world. Is, this is the part, isn't it, where she takes him to this? Uh, she calls it a water cache, doesn't she? Something like that. And uh, she starts crying, and then like a tear hits the water, and it like ripples out, and he touches it, and he goes into a waking dream. And I was like, what is happening? Well, yes, she cries because she's thinking about her dead father. Her tear hits the water, and a very like poorly rendered CGI ripple ripples through the water. Yeah. But this thing, Paul doesn't reach out and touch the water. He looks down and sees the ripple in the water, and then he just reaches out and touches the air. Yeah. And causes the entire world to ripple around him. Yeah, that's what happens in Waking Dreams. And he kind of just has a vision of the Fremen sort of chanting the Mahadi name, and, and it's, you know, another vision of things to come. Meanwhile, though, Baron Harkonnen's uh, non-handsome nephew, he looks kind of like a guy named Biff or something. <laughs> I actually wrote Biff down. That's funny. He, he does he look looks like, a like a Biff. Whatever his yeah. real name is, that's what he looks like. Yeah, he's uh, he's shown he's not a very good leader. Yeah, he's he's been left in charge to run Dune, and he's mad at the Fremens for running all these raids. So he's just like killing any immigrant to get his get get his hands on. He's basically trying to make a show for the people of uh, you know, look what happens when you disobey us. But this is actually all part of the Baron's plan. He's kind of sent the dumb nephew there to basically make a mess of things. Because his real plan is his other nephew, who's kind of this handsome, muscly showboat, is going to come in and take over for his brother. 
and like be the savior that uh, Dune needs, basically. It's his way of like manipulating the people. Too bad he spends most of his time either um, uh, fighting, like his little uh, gladiator ring, or taking baths. Did you, uh, since you like the costume so much, did you notice what the Baron was floating around in in this scene? Well, what do you mean? He was floating up in the air and he had this uh, big red cape on and a, nothing but a red S&M outfit like it's just like yeah that's a leather jockstrap that's what i meant earlier yeah like you see a you see a ton of his uh uh legs in this and i was like wow bold choice who's fully nude was he fully nude all he's got is just like a leather casing over his groin <laughs> like an snm outfit and then just the cape yeah i mean you know what if, if flaunted if you got it you know it looked kind of great it was the best costume yeah i i and i i said it before i like this actor in the role too oh he's he's having a great time we jump over now to the Emperor's Palace, and uh, the princess has been uh, pretty pissed off because she's pretty confident her dad helped overthrow Dune, and she's been trying to get to the truth of the conspiracy, and she, like, sends one of her uh, bald handmaids off to spy on the uh, handsome Harkonnen nephew, and this is she's kind of basically setting up this idea is like she she doesn't like how politics is run, and she wants to get to the bottom of, like, what really happened on Dune. Right. But there's a third group of people at play in this conspiracy. Who are they? The Emperor's Mentant is uh, conspiring with the Benny Jesuit's uh, Reverend Mother. Right, right. Who's uh, still dressed up in like pop star chic. Great costuming yeah. for her. Yeah, yeah. She loves those hats. The Mentant sort of shows up to talk to the Benny Jesuit Reverend Mother because he's sort of talking about how those weird Bat Boy navigators, they're freaking out a little because they've, they've, they have this vision of a nexus on the horizon. As you do. So... I think we're supposed to take it that these navigators, I guess they've absorbed so much spice. I, I guess how they fold space or how they make these wormholes, they, they seem to be able to see through time and space and like see outcomes. It's obviously a larger thing, and I'm sure it's in the books, but they, they've implied a few times that the spice is important not only because it's a form of currency, but also because it seems to affect different species and different cultures in different ways. Am, am I getting that wrong? I mean, I took it to mean it's important for trade because without it, the navigators aren't able to kind of do hmm. this thing that they do. Right. But may- maybe it does affect different people in different ways. But certainly with the navigators, what what they've seen in this ability to like see the future possibilities is there's this nexus around Dune where the outcome is so complicated they can't see the future and it's causing problems for them. Like, And I'm assuming that's messing up trade routes. Hmm. At any rate, this is what you're referring to in your title, is that both the Mentant and the Reverend Mother are pretty concerned. They actually want to, I guess, probably stop what's happening on Dune for their own reasons, because they sort of talk about how they need to maintain the balance of power if the Galactic Empire is going to run. And Paul sort of futzing around with these Fremen is, is causing some sort of like chaos in the future possibilities timeline. And as a result, these bat boy navigators aren't unable to do what they need to do to, like, keep trade flowing, I guess. I think I'd really rather just watch these bat boys guys do their thing. Really? Yeah, why not? Just these Muppets? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Muppets in space. <laughs> Great movie. Yeah. Not uh, one of the lesser ones, but it's pretty good in retrospect. I think that was the one. <laughs> I think that was the one where the Dawson's Creek cast showed up at one point. I could be wrong, but I think that I think was you might was. be right. They might be on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny, but it is. They're very popular at the time. Kids that talk like adults. 
Yeah, kids that talk like adults. Is that what that show was? I never watched it. Yeah, yeah, that, that was like the big selling point. Like, can you believe like how these, they, they speak just like adults, but then you watch it, you're like, oh no, they speak like really bad Shakespearean actors. Back at the uh, Fremen City, there was a thing here that I was a little confused by, but I, I guess I more or less parsed it out over, over the course of the episode. But the, the pregnant lady, Jessica, she gets a visit from this old woman who apparently she's also a Benny Jesuit reverend mother but she's a different one than the one we've seen she's a missionary who came to be among the fremen yeah there's i, I assume it's like a just a an order of nuns well i had assumed there was one reverend mother who kind of like led the Benny jesuits but i guess this means like every individual culture or like planet gets their own yeah they all get their own it's like uh <laughs> yeah because she's clearly from the same order but she doesn't have at all the same goals that the rest of the Benny Jesuits seem to have. Like she's on the Fremen side. And she has a great, um, uh, she's got like two like pointy hat things coming out of her side. It's very medieval, her look. She's got two pointy uh, like uh, dunce caps coming out of her hat, or her head. <laughs> I What I liked is she proposes an idea that this series is never really, never really gets into, but I thought was maybe could have been an interesting premise for it is that she gets there and she accuses Lady Jessica of basically exploiting the Fremen legend of this savior for her own purposes. Like, she's just like, you're just using this legend you heard about to, like, position yourself and your son in a good way amongst these people. I mean, I would agree with her. If I found out that the name Paul gave him, gave himself, it's like, uh, they're like, what do you want to name? Uh, he's like, uh, my name's going to be Messiah you're like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, it does seem a little, like, I get her point. They do seem like they're they're uh, they're trying real hard to, to fulfill a prophecy. Well, what's interesting is the, re- or not the Reverend Mother, Lady Jessica actually admits that, like, yeah, we're kind of exploiting them. Does she? She says it explicitly like that? Yeah, she does sort of explicitly, like, there's a bit of an explicit, like, I didn't want me or my son to die, so we did what we had to. I find a lot of the times that these conversations give the impression that they're furthering the plot or building characters but it's doing neither and that is sort of like this sort of thing too so if they say oh yeah we really were kind of doing stuff uh on the slides like but it doesn't change anything so who cares does my is, is that point make sense yeah i think it's more that they didn't use it to its full extent like if there was some doubt or some question of it then it would have been more useful but it, it's more like this is a line from the books we're putting in here but we're not really leaning into that idea right Right. What happens next is uh, Paul finally consummates his relationship with Cheney. Mm-hmm. She uh, she does this. They, she takes him out of the city and they, she sort of draws. I couldn't quite follow it, but she's trying to explain some sort of like legend or explanation for how spice and worms work. Basically to say that like spice comes from worms, but she like draws in the sand and attempts to explain it. What I thought, and this this may be true, after watching what I thought she was saying is the sand comes from the the uh the worms it's their poop so once again we have an entire universe based on a poop economy well i believe in the books that is true like i think it is, is it true poop yeah there you go and this may then be part of space above beyond and the chigs are formed on arrakis because they also have a poop economy well i mean then you must feel much like paul because all this worm poo talk is quite the foreplay for him because they have sex <laughs> right after this. Yeah, they have te- they have tent sex. She's like, yeah, she's on. She's like, she's like, yeah. So the worm. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get to the tent. It's kind of interesting because they're consummating the relationship where we're seeing the 
culmination of this love story. Paul's also talking politics of like all the things he'll need to do, which kind of hasn't come up. But like he's basically saying, hey, Cheney, I love you, but I'm going to be a big guy. So I'm going to have to go marry someone who's, you know, a little higher up the social ladder. Are you cool being my concubine? I don't know the book uh, like you do. And my my guess was that and I don't know what's going to happen. My guess is they fall in love. She's going to die at some point so he can conveniently then marry the princess and be with the princess so that you as a viewer slash reader don't feel bad about what's happening because she's dead. Am I right? Is that what's going to happen? I don't remember and I don't know, but I actually think what they're trying to set up is basically because Paul's dad never married his mom. She stayed his concubine as well, but they were very much in love. And even when he tells Cheney that she's like totally cool with it, she's like, no problem. I get it. You're going to have to get a wife at some point, but like we're in love. So I'm going to stick around. I think what they're really setting up is that, you know, he's going to have concubines. Is that it? That's that's the whole point of it? Well, I think that's just this world. It's like Game of Thrones or something, right? Like it's just part of the world and everyone's right. cool with it. Um, but it is an interesting point that I think it's the scene right after this that Jessica is talking to the Reverend Mother and and explains that while she always loved the husband, the reason they never got married was they wanted to always leave him open for the possibility of political marriages. Well, that's what these two scenes combined kind of are setting up this idea that this princess who's been running this, like trying to solve this conspiracy in the background is also going to enter the picture romantically. Right. I think what they're, they're trying to ease us into the idea that he's going to have two wives, basically. This is, I think maybe the next important part is where uh, the princess shows up and watches old um, uh, uh, fake sting uh, fighting and she's like start before she seduces him yeah well she talks her dad into sending her to the harkonnen home planet for a handsome nephew's birthday did you, did you catch the name of the harkonnen home planet oh i did hold on i have it written down it is oh is it gaty prime yeah like getty prime i think right and you 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 refer to him as handsome uh, nephew i refer to him as fake sting <laughs> oh right because he was played by sting in uh the 84 Lynch version. Do you do you think Getty Prime is like the main planet in the galaxy that uh, Getty Lee from Rush colonized? Um, it's possible. I think if I was on that planet, I had to hear Rush all the time. I'd kill myself. No, not a Rush fan? <laughs> not a really a Rush fan, no. I mean, they're fine. I understand why they're good musicians. I'm just, I don't really want to listen to it. <laughs> I love the wide shots of Planet Harkonnen. It's kind of got a really weird architecture. It's got almost a uh, industrial feel to it. It's got there's a lot of like sharp angles, and it looks like a place where there'd be a lot of smog. Yeah, it for some reason in my mind it looks somewhere between a, like a cross between like the Klingon homeworld and then like blackout World War Two London. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's it it doesn't look like a place where um you could grow a nice garden. The princess has come here basically to try to get to the bottom of, of what happened with this conspiracy. And the birthday is a perfect excuse. She's going to come watch his 100th slave gladiator battle yeah. as, as a way of, as an excuse to be there. And it, it's not, not that good a match. He, he's, he's quite the dominant fighter. Do we even see the match in the episode? Yeah, we see. Oh, you know what? We, it's not here we see it. It's later on we see, uh, we see him fighting with a guy. And he's, he's, he has a fight in the first one and a fight in this one. But it's really quick. Because she's because the princess comes and she's watching him uh, uh, from like like in the corners. What I know she watches for sure is his uh, group bath. <laughs> that is true. She does a lot of uh, 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 sneak it around and she walks in and he's getting bathed by in my I remember two women were bathing. It might have been three. I believe there were three. 
three women bath- bathing him and you get there's a real shot of like like his butt and he when he sees her he sort of like proudly is like hey check this out see my naked well body? i just like the entire time he's standing there getting like water dumped on him he is flexing the whole time well he's doing what he can i mean he's really in shape yeah yeah she's, he's in good shape she comes over um as a princess does and is like without saying anything is like i'll wash you and he's like yeah i bet you do she starts like oiling him up it's quite it's quite sensual but, but what i like about this is and i don't know if it's in this exact scene but they come back to it that she starts like kind of massaging him and he's in this bath and the only thing she says to him are very pointed direct questions about the attack like they're they're she doesn't even try to like work it into conversation it's just direct questions that if he even had the the slightest intelligence he'd realize what she's doing yeah i mean he spills the beans on the entire attack on Hesitrates, the entire conspiracy he even like lets her know oh, we never found paul's body so who knows maybe he's alive out there yeah she's like she's like massaging him and first thing she's like so there's a conspiracy right here and he's like yeah 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 of course there's a conspiracy yeah he gives it up real quick yeah. it's kind of funny once she gets all the information he like turns around to like go make out with her he's like now now let's do what i want to do and as soon as he does she like waves her bald handmaid over and like has her stand in she's like you you stand in for this part i gotta go and and he was fine with it he wasn't like wait wait, wait a minute he was just like uh, here's a warm body yeah all the harkonnen nephews are pretty dumb i guess so well how else would you explain their ability to give up so much information in such short order i suppose so jumping back to dune though this kind of leads us to the end of the episode in this i guess climax of the episode because what's his name stilgar He's sort of talking about how the Harkonnens are pretty angry, so they're pushing their forces deeper into the desert, which means the Fremen are going to have to abandon their city and head to the very, the very deep southern desert to stay, to stay hidden. Is this where Jessica drinks out of a bagpipe? Is that what we're coming up to? What's what we're coming up to? We're also coming up to a baby worm. Oh, I did love the baby worm. It couldn't look more phallic. I didn't fully understand. I think it had something to do with what Cheney was explaining to us earlier. They had a little pit full of sand where they, I guess they had captured a baby worm. To what end, I wasn't clear on. Maybe they had trained them? They either had bred it from a baby or they captured it as a baby and they were using it to produce spice. It was a, it was like essentially like a fish farm. Right, right. Since they have to leave, they decide that I guess they need to clean up their little worm farm. So they start by flooding the sand the worm lives in. Yeah. And then... It's kind of cool because the worm swims into the water and swimming around. And at this point, it's got to be like a 15 foot long, like foot in diameter, like Muppet worm that looks pretty cool and long and kind of gross. And they grab that big old penis and wrestle it. Yeah, a couple guys jump in, wrestle it real good. And then someone comes in and puts a hood on it. It was, it was uh, Cheney comes in and she puts a hood on top of it, which seems like it killed it immediately. But I guess the point was like uh, they were drowning it or something, but it was almost just like it hates having its eyes covered. Yeah, well, it wasn't in the water anymore. It seemed like they put the hood on. Somehow that killed it. And then they're like, all right, we're done. I guess they were just like covering their tracks by killing their worm. Yeah. Anyway, anyways, the point is they killed the worm. And it's not the last person to die this episode because they have to travel into the deep southern desert. Uh, that old Fremen reverend mother She's not going to be able to make the trip. She's just too old. So they're going to need a new reverend mother. Yeah. So we get another ritual, which seems like it's about the 45th ritual we've seen so far in this episode, um, which is, I guess, taking the essence or the soul or the memories or something of the old lady and putting it to Jessica. And she's got to go 
drink what I think they said, and correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, it was like poisoned water? Yeah, it's poisoned water. She needs to drink that to prove she can be the Reverend Mother. If she can survive the poisoned water by going into her own mind and, like, turning it into clean water, I guess, she'll get all the memories of the past Reverend Mothers and and become the new one. So she's a little bit like a Dax or something. What, what I like, though, is... so. She's supposed to, inside of her, change the water. And then they were like, and we'll drink from it. And I was like, are they going to drink her water? But no, somehow by her changing the water inside of her, she also changes all the poison water around them, which they've just like poured poison water in jugs for some reason. It's metaphysical. It's religious, Jordan. I suppose. <laughs> but what's the important thing? Uh, so she, she drinks it and goes into like a vision, right? Almost similar to... Uh, Paul's waking dreams but in this it's almost more like the end of life like she actually sees a light at the end of a tunnel yeah and the the reverend mother who's dying appears as a young woman now to like touch her chest and like send all the visions into her of the past reverend mothers with like a flash of light but while she's doing it she looks at the lady lady jessica and says why didn't you tell me it's like she went into a bar and was having a drink and everyone's upset because they didn't know she was pregnant i was surprised that she never mentioned that to anyone well, I thought everyone knew because, they like, at one point she was just sitting there rubbing her stomach, like, clearly, like, distended stomach. I thought everyone just knew, but I guess uh, it's Apparently that, that uh, Benny Jesuit, like, future knowledge doesn't go quite that far. Yeah, I guess not. And apparently, though, this is, it's a very bad idea to become the Reverend Mother while you're pregnant. I, I guess, yeah. But it's, oh, don't worry, it works out. She, I don't know, doesn't go light, so she's fine that way. It wasn't it the, the 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 they make some sort of comment like the baby has to understand and go through this with you or something like that. Well, what it is is in transferring kind of all this knowledge and all this sort of stuff to Lady Jessica because the baby's in her body, the baby's going to also essentially get lifetimes of memory and life. So it will be born basically a full fledged human being. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a advantage. But in order to do that in this vision state. The, uh, this little puppet fetus comes back and starts floating around and she's, she needs to grab the puppet fetus and hold it to herself in order to like properly ensure they both absorb the knowledge correctly. Yeah, that was funny. I like I like when they add a weird little puppet to these things. I, I agree. It's, the, it's one of the better things in this episode. And of course it all works out. Lady Jessica and the baby survive the ritual. The Reverend Mother dies and uh, a new Reverend Mother has been born. And how do the Fremen celebrate? uh they all start i know they drink the water they have a huge orgy yes <laughs> they do but then what's weird about it is they have a huge orgy but then that's also like the image the like um the waking nightmare of uh paul has it like it like transfers over to that well paul walks out and kind of like walks around the orgy and then i think in the middle of that he has sort of this premonition where they all die and then they all like come back to life or something that's that was it it's 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 just life you're having a good time then you die yeah and this is basically the end of the end of this third ep- or second episode and, and the setup for i guess the final episode with with all the stakes now in place yeah all the everything's set up now it's it's you just can't wait for the conclusion we got a fremen army we got a messiah we've got this reverend mother with a baby who's going to be a super super fremen uh, benny jesuit it's all coming together you got a worm with a sack on its head you got <laughs> you got a floating fat guy not wearing any pants it's all there you got pointy hats you got you got fr- fremen marionettes it's all there it's all there. everything you could possibly want yeah yeah i mean that about wraps it up for the episode 
I will say my problem last episode, I think we talked about a little bit how I kept feeling like it looked like a stage play that had been like photographed. Yeah. Watching this episode, I finally figured out, I think, what it is that is causing me to feel like I'm watching just a play or something that's been broadcast on television. Okay. Obviously, they had a lot of money. They built huge, elaborate sets. There's like crazy costumes. I think they were in like Poland or something where they shot it. But I realized watching some of the scenes in the Emperor's house or watching them wandering the sands, how they've shot in the studio is there's no depth to the sets they've built. Like, it's the camera. There's maybe 10 to 12 feet of set, of, like, built set, whether it be a sand dune or, like, columns or something. And then butted right up to that, like, 12 feet back is a backdrop, like a painted backdrop for what's supposed to be behind it. So there's no depth to any of these scenes. Like, it all just feels like claustrophobic and tight because there's like if maybe that set had been backed out another like 10 20 30 feet that backdrop would be like a little more out of focus and a little out of the way but watching it this time i just really i really couldn't help but noticing like when they're climbing up a sand dune like the sand dune clearly is like 10 feet of sand dune and then just like a drape with a painting of the desert behind them so there's there's no depth to any of the scenes. I think that's is what has been causing me so much cognitive dissonance when I was watching this show. Well, I think it's that. And I think because of the reasons you've listed, it, it's staged that way as well. So people sort of, you know, enter from stage right, enter from stage right. And they kind of walk and they stand in the middle and they kind of walk around a little prop they have in the middle. And then they walk, you know, they exit back off into the curtain. There's There really is no room to maneuver. Like you really are on such tight, tight quarters. It, it gives it that impression. Uh, it, it's kind of, yeah, I, I think that's because I'm having this, like, cognitive sense about feeling like I'm watching a play. I'm having so much more trouble suspending my disbelief, and it's just so much harder to get into this into this show. Well, we're at that point. What would you give this? One. <laughs> I, I knew it was coming. I knew it, but I was still... <laughs> I thought I about still going excited. up to a two because I, like, at least tried really hard to get into it it's just not possible it's trying so hard to be a movie but also like give every little detail of the book it's not but it can't do both it's funny that i'm I like i'm gonna give it a four which is a higher score than you and i feel like based on this conversation i hated it more than you did but i think my my point is i appreciate what they're trying to do in terms of the world building and showing these rituals and rites and all these intricacies of these societies. But I just think there's a much more subtle and much where much more interesting way you could do this with uh, clever dialogue and, or a way of just showing something as opposed to telling it. And I just find I get bored really quickly because there doesn't seem to be any sense of propulsion. There's no, uh, like Paul's not changing anything he's just walking around and they go and now here's a here's a funeral and he's like uh-huh and like now here's a water ceremony uh-huh and now we're doing this and he just kind of walks around and reacts to these things and i just find i would have loved for them just to condense this and it's it's almost an unfair criticism because i get what they're doing is trying to film the book that's what this is that's why it's so long that's why the way it is i just think as a viewer it'd be nice if they just hinted at some of this stuff in the world and just actually focused on the plot they're more concerned with making sure they do all the scenes of the book, but they're not selling them. We we skimmed over it, but there's a vision he has where this Fremen uh, Reverend Mother tells him, you're this whirlwind that is going to combine politics and religion. 
and I'm watching that, I kind of remembered a bit of the book. And that's actually what was interesting about the book. I think probably why it's popular is that Paul isn't necessarily a hero. What he's doing is he's using religious fervor to create a political movement that is going to be this like unstoppable force that is somewhat evil in some ways. Hmm. Because once you let that genie out of the bottle, there's no like he's going to stop this corruption. But what he's going to unleash is a whirlwind that is going to be untamable. If that's the plot, then have that be the plot. Have the, you know, uh, for him, the ends justify the means. Well, I think that's the thing is they're so busy, like, making sure they get all the scenes. They're not tying them together. They're not giving any thematic resonance to it. It's just when I'm watching, I'm like, oh, right. That's that's like one of the major subplots of this book. But because you put as much weight on that as you do on every little piece, none of it rises to the surface. There's no idea we're sticking to i th- I think actually that's uh pretty well articulated uh that everything is given the same amount of weight regardless of importance so nothing seems important exactly it's like if, if you spend as much time on people talking about the smoothness of their skin as you do to uh the motivation for going into a battle it's like well how is anyone supposed to care about any of this it's true. I mean, the one thing I kept noticing was how much they talked about flesh water. And I'm like, that's not that important. But it's all they seem to be focusing on. I don't know. Anyways, it's look, we got one more part. Maybe maybe they'll save it. And this la- the last part will really uh, uh, make this miniseries worth it. I mean, at least it'll be the climax. There certainly will be like battles and fights and stuff. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. Well, if you got any thoughts on this, maybe you watched it when it came out and you kind of can remember it a bit better and like what what the feeling was in 2000 you can email us at continuumdrag at gmail.com we will have lots of pictures of worms and videos of worms on instagram and twitter this week i'm sure mm-hmm. uh, at continuum drag on both those platforms that worm transit system you're so fond of a little a little worm bus everyone gets on goes, <laughs> yeah. goes, to, goes, to, goes to work comes back home at the end of the day i'd rather just uh, ride around with those little cute little me- mice yeah, just like pockets full of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it for this week. Uh, so I guess we'll wrap it up. Um, well, Jordan, uh, until next time, uh, may your blade chip and shatter. Oh, that's yeah, fine. <laughs> Continuum Drag is recorded at Astrolab Studios in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rick Seedler. Produced by Jordan Delick and Luke Black. Special thanks to Adam Wheatner, Jeff Hanley, and Dwayne Wright. <laughs>